Lou Ferrigno, 24 years old, a former sheet metal worker. Mr. America and twice Mr. Universe, he's turned professional this year and is a contender for the Mr. Olympia title. Lou lives with his parents in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. The pot of thunder and rock and roll is here. And let's go. The Duff McKagan joke of the week. Hey, uh, Chris Jericho. It's Duff McKagan. I got something that's a little coarser than my usual. But I was talking to a friend and I said, hey, man, would it be okay if I banged your mom? My friend said, no way. I said, uh, would we still be friends? He said, no. Uh, I said, would we be enemies? He said, no. Uh, what would we be then? I asked him. He said, We'd be even. There we go. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs> We'd be even. Get it? Because that means that I banged your mom. Uh, only Duff McKagan, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, could come up with that one. But at least he forewarned us before he actually told it. Uh, what do you say? A little bit uh, risque. Uh, it's not a Friday without the Duff joke of the week. Ever since the summer of 2017, I think it was, he's been uh, laying these jokes on us uh, for uh, over a year. And thanks to Duff for never letting us down. And thanks to everyone who booked their cabin for uh, Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Seapart Deux. We were over 70% sold out, uh, and the general on sale was just Wednesday. Uh, you guys made it close to a sellout on the very first uh, first little pre-sale there. We're going to sell this bad boy. We added some more great talent to the list. We're adding more every single day. I'll run down some of the new awesome additions later on in the show. But right now, I want to get to my guest, the original Incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno. Is here, and uh, he's kind of an icon of the 70s. He was a bodybuilder who competed against Arnold Schwarzenegger in the Mr. Olympia contest back in the 70s. Lou was the runner-up, but he and Arnold remained good friends to this day. I'd say that Lou's probably the second most famous bodybuilder of all time uh, behind Arnold, and of course, both of them were in competition uh, in the P- Pumping Iron documentary, one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, we hear uh, all about Lou's thoughts about Pumping Iron and how he got interested in bodybuilding in the first place. He was also on Celebrity Apprentice. You'll hear how he tried to get Penn Jillette fired that season, and who ultimately got uh, ultimately got Lou booted out of the boardroom. He trained Michael Jackson for 20 years. Uh, it was always kept a secret, and he'll explain why, and how Michael was doing right up to his death. Uh, Lou was helping him get ready for the big This Is It concert tour. Lou talks about his friendship with Jackson over the years, what it was like hanging out with him, and we actually recorded this last year long before the Leaving Neverland documentary came out on HBO, so it's going to be a little bit of a different perspective for both of us. Uh, of course, we hit on Lou's green makeup and shooting five seasons of the uh, iconic Incredible Hulk TV show and how he ended up playing King of Queens. Uh, uh, he played himself on King of Queens. was very funny on that, too. Great guy. Very, very cool. I've since run into him in LAX, uh, somebody that I enjoy uh, seeing and saying hi to. And uh, now I want to present to you uh, the second famous, most famous bodybuilder of all time, the original Incredible Hulk. It's Lou Ferrigno right here on Talk is Jericho. At six foot five and 275 pounds, Lou is the largest bodybuilder ever, and he thinks he can take the title from Arnold this year. So does his father, Matty, who retired from the New York City Police Department to oversee Lou's training. The first time Arnold came to America, I took Louis backstage and and when Arnold went by us, I'll never forget, I looked at Louis's face, and he just looked at Arnold with awe. I thought God just passed us. And I looked at Louis, I said, uh, what do you think, Louis? And he looked at me and said, see, that he's big. 
Okay, so we're here in uh, uh, in Calgary with uh, with Lou Ferrigno, and we just figured out that we have the same birthday. Yes, <laughs> November ninth. It's amazing as you uh, begin this interview, you just got off the plane coming from Dubai. Yeah, yeah, from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Which is funny because though every year, like when when it says like okay, November ninth, today's birthdays, and I, I forgot that I always see November Lou Ferrigno, 9th, yeah. November ninth, Scorpions. Yeah, yeah. yeah Scorpions. The same date. Yeah, that's funny. But um, and you're, we're here in Calgary. Do you do a lot of uh, these conventions, like the signing conventions? Yeah, I do a lot of them because uh, between filming, I got movies coming out. But uh, like for example, I was at Austria last week, and this uh, show this weekend. Calgary Comic Con, they have over hundred thousand people. Hmm, really? Yeah. So do you like doing them? I like it because it's instant gratification. You know, the fans come up. We would talk about three generations of fans, mm-hmm. you know, kids because they've seen my series, also my physicality. So over a forty-year period, they get excited because when they see me. I put a smile on their face because my whole life, you know, overcoming adversity and what I've accomplished gives them hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because you mentioned three, three decades, three generations. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. it's been forty. 41 years. 41 years yep. or so. Because if you go through, I mean, from Pumping Iron to Hulk to all the stuff that you did in the 80s, then the, now the King of Queens kind of right. gave you a new, uh, new birth, that sort of thing. Well, it's interesting. When I did Pumping Iron in 1975, it was myself and Arnold because back then bodybuilding was, was more like a shadow sport. The public didn't know what bodybuilding was. And we had nothing because first prize was $750. Hmm. You trained a whole year for that competition. Really? $750. And that's Mr. Olympia. Yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not. So um, it changed a lot. But since then, we didn't know what direction we were taking because it's the sport of bodybuilding. Because back then, all the big guys outside were going to pro football with the money. Mm-hmm. But we were in the bodybuilding. But it's amazing how much changed over 40 years. Now you have all these figure competition, men's fitness. It just exploded like in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Even even the wrestling uh, federation. Sure, sure. But you're like a pioneer, like one of the OG uh-huh. bodybuilders type things. Let's talk about Pumping Iron that you mentioned it because obviously one of my favorite documentaries ever. I've been watching it since I was probably 15 years old. I can quote almost all of it. How was that put together? And you mentioned because bodybuilding wasn't big. Was somebody deciding to try and put a spotlight on it, the filmmakers that approached you to be involved? Or how was that? Well, I competed at the ABC Superstar competition, and I did very well. See, when the book came out, it was on the bestsellers list. And then George Butler and Charles Gain wanted to make this document, docudrama, documentary, Popping Iron, so they approached me in Arnold. And I said, great, it's a great idea, because the concept was in South Africa. So we figured, why not? Because it's the first time it could be shown in the theater. But it was interesting that as they were filming Popping Iron, they almost went bankrupt. So one time they had to get the bodybuilders to pose at the Whitney Museum of Art to raise money for it. Mm. Yeah, because I don't know if you know that they couldn't put Arnold on the cover of uh, Popping Iron because he was too freakish looking. Because the way he looked, they put another guy named Ed Corny on the cover because mm. the, for the public to, uh, to uh, embrace it. But when you think about it now, 40-some years later, becoming one of the biggest movie stars in the world. And mm. then both of us. But back then... We didn't know where we were going to go. But I was like, we were hoping it would get some attention. But once it came out, that's why people today, they still talk about Popping Iron because it's never be, it'll never be duplicated. Mm-hmm. It was a great film because of the blood, sweat, and tears of bodybuilding. What attracted you to bodybuilding in the first place? Well, when I was a kid, close to birth, I lost like 75% of my hearing. Mm-hmm. I had a severe speech impediment, and I was bullied. So I used to read a lot of comic books. I was like a real-life Walter Mitty to escape the pain. <laughs> I used to read about the Hulk, Superman, Spider-Man, to fantasize being them. Then one time I went to uh, a store to trade comic books. My father took me, and I saw this magazine, and there was a bodybuilder named Dave Draper on the cover. 
I said, oh my God, there's a Mr. Universe. I, was, I always watch Miss Universe. So I took the magazine home. I read it from page to page. And uh, I learned everything I can about bodybuilding the sport. And I was excited because I felt like there's somewhere I have a dream about competing. And I was skinny. I was a kid. But it was just my passion. Mm -hmm. In high school, they used to make fun of me because I'm reading all this muscle magazine. But my passion because I just love lifting weights because it gave me that sense of power and well-being. Mm -hmm. Kind of took you out yeah. of the bullying aspect, uh -huh. too. And, and I love the, the dynamic of Pumping Iron where you have Arnold who was kind of... I guess he was already the champion, uh -huh. and he's living high, you know, smoking cigarettes and or cigars and champagne. And then you're training in like this the dark horse co concrete and mortar gym with yeah. your dad as your trainer. Right. It's such a great, you know, dichotomy between the two guys. Yeah, and and you know, at the same time, uh, most people don't realize I did not have a great relationship with my father. Mm, wow. Because I don't know if you know this, because uh, most bodybuilders have had bad relationship with their fathers because of the fact we got in bodybuilding because. We wanted that respect, so we built a powerful body that we're never going to be abused anymore. It's a normal thing with big bodybuilders, champions, mm. very common. So anyway, so that's why that, that, that's the whole thing involved, because uh, back then, it just we, we didn't have a, a film. Uh, it was just pumping iron. It was like, uh, it was like a, a godsend. Sure, sure. But then, of course, there's all the, the, the psychological warfare with yeah. Arnold and you. Was that, was that real, or was it show business, or...? Well, I wasn't in my best shape, and Arnold at that time was arrogant, mm -hmm. and he was uh, he played mind games, but he didn't really check me out because I wasn't on my best, but I just knew that being in this film, to be on stage with him, just basically the two of us, but that's who he is at the time, he's a great manipulator, <laughs> but uh, but that's what made the film interesting. It's great, yeah. Yeah. When he's like, what did you say, Louis? And you're like, what? What did you say? I'm training, Arnold. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I had fantasy throwing the barbell. I, um, that one scene when I said, I'm watching you. I almost had a thought, maybe just drop the ball on him. Maybe I could injure him. I could win the competition. Because <laughs> you're a, a lot taller than Arnold, too. Four inches. You're like 6'5"? Yeah. So, and I, because he was always known for his giant chest right. and his giant quad, or his, his shoulders, his delts, right. yeah. his biceps. But uh, but you were so much taller. Is that a hindrance in body in bodybuilding? It's well, it's shorter guys. Weird that a person like myself had, had perfect symmetry. Yeah. Arnold's 6'1", so... He broke down the barriers for the tall man because before him, all the champions were like 5'10". Right, right, But right. he was the first one on the scene that was over six feet tall. So it was my idol growing up. And I wanted to beat, beat the best. So uh, I competed with him at the first first Mr. Olympia. I was on stage with him at 22 years old. Mm -hmm. I won Mr. America and Mr. Universe straight up to Mr. Olympia mm -hmm. because I felt like to beat the best, I had to defeat him. So uh, we're still here. <laughs> Did you ever beat him? No, I can't even run him up. Right. After I did Pumping Iron, I was going to compete again. He retired, but then the Hulk series came along. So then I, I was out of uh, competition for 17 years. So one time at the age of 42, I woke up, I said, I feel I want to be in the best shape of my life. It's unfinished business, so I made a comeback to bodybuilding. So in 1992, I was 325 pounds of 2% body fat. Uh-huh. Heavy wow. squat. I had to learn to develop the hunger to compete again. Hmm. That was the hardest uh, thing. Was it like in the 70s that we talked a little bit about, about steroids and stuff and obviously not as prevalent, or maybe it is as prevalent now, but did you guys know what this was or was it fairly new at the time or was it something that had been around for bodybuilding or was it something that guys even did? You mean the steroids? Yeah, the steroid stuff, yeah. It was legal at the time and, and I really? know I did it under a doctor, it was legal. Wow. And uh, under a doctor's care. 
And I was never big into that kind of situation, but mm -hmm. everybody back then, I can't speak for other people, it was always like a, a small amount because we had great genetics. Mm -hmm. But now it's so widespread, so bad because now it's illegal. But these guys today, they're doing the growth hormone uh, or the insulin and taking other chemicals. So it, it, it's not a winning factor. Yeah. But it's all about hard labor, hard work when I competed back then. Of course, it's still. I mean, just because if you're on the gas, it doesn't mean that you just have, don't have to do anything. Right. And it's interesting, too, like for even in WWE, like now the, the steroid testing is so, so stringent. Mm -hmm. Whereas obviously it didn't used to be in the past, but now it's 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 a non-factor in the WWE. Whereas before it used to be so based around it. Yeah. You know, but you still got to put in the time and the effort to still look good because it's a cosmetic business. Yeah, because I, I know in the wrestling world, I mean, steroids it, 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 uh, was used because the fact that a lot of time it cushions your body because you're taking a beating with a mm -hmm. chair, jumping. I mean, I think one of the hardest sports in the world is wrestling because most people don't realize that you you're changing planes. You're almost wrestling every day yeah you got to rehearse and they got to sit around for four or five hours and then after the <laughs> match you go on the plane for the next event it's not easy then eventually you know you get involved with pain pills and drugs yeah, like sure. that it, it can be i mean if you allow point. yourself to go down that road yep. you know when you're talking about waiting four or five hours when you were doing your bodybuilding like uh, mr olympia how do you like obviously you're training and dieting and everything for months and months to peak on this exact day but day of the show what, what, what were you doing? Light warm-ups? Do you eat anything? The day of the show, basically two days before, you you would not be working out because the whole idea is that you want to be ready the week before. When you go to a compete, you should be on vacation. You can't change your body to the last week. Maybe deplete the body a little bit of um, um, a low sodium, the excess water posing. But you have to do your homework. But sometimes you could be ready to peak out perfectly, but if you get the flu, you get a virus, mm. you know, then you're just screwed. Oh, right, 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 yeah. right. The day of the show, then, so that at that point you're just kind of relaxing, and then when you're ready to do your exactly routine. because you need to be ready a week before. Okay, gotcha. At least because when you're in your best shape, so just say you travel, you, you shouldn't be training two days before. Maybe just posing, just to keep the condition. I mean, mm -hmm. you have to be ready a week before. Now you mentioned that you worked with the WBF, which was Vince's uh, Vince McMahon's yeah. bodybuilding federation, which was mid '90s or so. Uh -huh. Were you involved as a competitor? Yeah, because I signed with Vince at the time because I was excited that I was bringing bodybuilders into the mainstream. Right. have these different... Uh, Gimmicks for the guys yeah, and everybody exactly. had a personality. Yeah, and uh, I liked Vince, but unfortunately, I, I, I understand that he had a problem with the government with the whole steroid issue. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, he had to give up the WBF, so it got out of hand. But it's too bad because he was on the right path to show the personalities of... The, of mm -hmm. uh, he's the great promoter of all the bodybuilders, so unfortunately it didn't work out. Yeah, but that's one of those things, like you said, for bodybuilding, when it was you and Arnold, you guys kind of had those personalities, right. and now I'm not sure... I mean, there was throughout the years, but now I'm not sure even who Mr. Olympia is at this point in time. Well, there's so many guys on stage. Like, for example, you have guys win like eight times, seven times, but the only people the public knows is me and Arnold. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Always going to be like that. What's your relationship with Arnold? We're friends. I yeah. see him all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're more, more, more mature now, and we have a lot of respect for each other. Mm -hmm. And I know he recently went to a heart surgery again for the third time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it seems okay, but um, I feel for the guy because... You know, you beat your body up and everything, and then, uh, but he's a survivor. Yeah, you feel you feel pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you look great. Yeah, I take a day at a time. I don't train heavy. I train light. I enjoy life to the fullest. I don't overindulge in like excessive anything. I do follows like eating or follows like drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. <sighs> I'm ready, Hank. Come on, I want to see ten. Ten. You're gonna do it. Come on, you're gonna wipe them out. I'll do it. Come on. Come on, push! Drive him off! Sing him out! Come on, get away, man! Uh, 
So let's start with some of the things that you mentioned the Hulk series. Now, obviously, that was kind of what put you really on the map. They did. And a kid my age, you know, was uh, born in 1970, so you, I grew up like the Hulk was the show. Like, that was the show, and you were waiting for the Hulk to appear. Age 15, age 45. Yeah. But you know what's funny? Bill Bixby, that show, you talk about the, being bullied. Bill Bixby, who played David Banner, was bully, and then you see the Hulk was perfect because if you want to discuss what bullying is like, watch the Hulk because <laughs> Bill gets bullied. Right. You see the white eyes. Yeah, exactly. He starts going crazy. Yeah. And then, now you said eight fifteen and eight forty-five. That's what you see the Hulk out. Really? Everybody wait for fifteen minutes. They know that eight fifteen minutes before um, nine o'clock, you're going to see the uh, the second Hulk out. Wow! So that was how they did the show. Every show. Precisely, almost. Really? Yeah. Ah, that's interesting. It was great because. Uh, Every nationality embraces it because every one of us has a little hunk inside of us. So when you see the show, he releases our anger, our demon inside of us. And that even 41 years later, even though he has CGI, everybody still mm -hmm. loves the original series. And the beauty about the series, every show had a message, a laser compelling message about life, about uh, depression, anxiety. It was great. And then the sad music where he walks back, yeah. he walks to with, the next with town. The, with the duffel bag. <laughs> the duffel bag on his back, he's the drifter. But like you said, like the, the, the Hulk now in like the Marvel movies and stuff, I don't like the see. It, it looks like a cartoon in a movie. I'd rather see, you know, a new generation of, of a guy like you. Yeah putting on the, 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 the foil, so to speak, and doing it live. Yeah, I would think that you ever see a human Hulk again, but mostly CGI now because mm. of all the, the technology and the, and the big screen, like like you have the adventures, you have spaceship. Mm. I mean, uh, I think it gets a little carry out, out of hand. How did you get the gig uh, as the Hulk? Well, I was training for the 1977 Mr. Olympia. So I would be in the best shape of my life. But about six weeks before my phone rang, they said we have an audition for the Incredible Hulk. I looked at the answering machine and I said, you got to be kidding. Because at the time, they were shooting the pilot with a guy named Richard Keel. He played George and yeah. James Bond. Okay, he didn't fit the part. Mm -hmm. The one time the director came on the set with his son, the boy said to his father, Dad, this is not the Hulk. He's big, but he doesn't look like the character. Tall and skinny the kind comic of, yeah. book. They, they, they realized they had a problem. They did a nationwide casting call. So when I could receive the phone call, I went the next day to audition for it. And I went the part. But my heart was into winning the Mr. Olympia in 1977. And I went to talk to Joe Weider. He's going to compete next year. So I was relieved. So I did the Hulk. 24 hours later, I'm in the full makeup, growling, smashing, breaking thing. And I kept saying to myself, I just pray that this show gets attention because it's all green. And the public don't know what the Hulk is. So when it hit the air, then the rest is history. <laughs> How long would it take to put all that makeup on? Three and a half hours, four hours sometimes. I had to be retouched all day long. I'd be the first one on the set and the last one to leave. What were they using? Like just like grease paint or something? Or? Well, the face, they had their forehead, nose appliance. They put grease makeup. Mm. But the body was pancake makeup, like a ball of clay. They had mm. to rub it in. It was, you know, I'll tell you, Chris, some days I just wanted to just leave and quit because... I had to stay in that motorhome all day long. I couldn't have lunch with the, with the crew because you know of the heat and sometimes sure. the cold. So I had to stay in the motorhome, be, be, be refrigerated. So it was my discipline of being a bodybuilder champion to, to sustain those hours and and, uh, and and endure the five hours uh, and also the five years of the series. Yeah, because if you walk outside and you smudge against something or something is hot, 
and they see one little bit of real skin on screen yeah, yeah, kills the illusion. But, but normally they retouch because sometimes it get, become dry and brittle, mm -hmm. but the retouch was uncomfortable. Wow. You're, yeah. you know, spraying the water. It's almost like, you know, it's irritating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that your first major acting gig? Yeah. Was how was it like? Uh, like was it with a Bill Bixby, obviously a, a veteran actor. Was he helping you out? And, and oh, definitely. Because when I first watched Bill, uh, I was a big fan of him. Different TV series. I was very honored to work with him. I used to watch how he filmed, because you know, as an actor, you have to learn where the scene you're coming from, and your performance. So it's a whole crap. And what's funny, shortly after that, I don't know if you know, 1987, I came here to do a play at Stage West Theater. Oh, in Calgary? Arson, Nick, and Lace. <laughs> so I decided to do theater, but my first play was, was <laughs> in, in Calgary. Calgary. Yes. Wow, so you did live theater. Yeah. How was that? It was great, but it's different. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you film, you could take a break if you make a mistake, but when you're on stage, it's live, you're in front of an audience. It, Besides the instant gratification, you have to be on the market. If you forget your lines, you got a problem. Yeah, yeah. You got to screw everybody that's else. Right. That's my that's my world. Like the wrestling world oh, or sure. musician, you have to get it right. You got one chance. You know, you you can't mess it up. Yeah, but how how much do you rehearse before you go in the ring? Well, not really. I mean, at this point in time, it's just you might rehearse something for the match, maybe maybe one or two little things, but mostly just talk about it before, and then rehearsing the 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 the, the, the interviews, the promos, the speeches. Yeah. You really don't. You just you just write it out. You work on it backstage. Oh, really? You go out there. Like for example, say it. you go out with, with an opponent, right? Yeah. And you know, before you uh, wrestling, you know, you, you you have like a stream and yelling at each other. The dialogue. You'll have that kind of written out. Sometimes gotcha. it's bullet points. Sometimes it's exact. Yeah. Whatever it may be, it's not improv anymore. It used to be improv. So it's like a play almost. It, it is because you, you know you can't screw up because you have it. Yeah. Can't step on each other's lines. Guy. It's a yeah. scene. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what it is. Was it uh, hard? For, I mean, now it's it, everyone knows Lou Frigno, like you said, with your, I don't even want to call it, a, is it would you call it a speech impediment or whatever? Back then, it has to be a speech now, now, what was it called? Just It's almost like just your voice, an accent. No, my voice. <laughs> yeah. A New York accent. Right, yeah. but people understand that now. But when you were first starting, you said you did a play. Was it was it a little bit hard with, yes. with the way you spoke? Yeah. Uh, it was more of a monotone kind of speech. Mm -hmm. So about five years ago, I had ear surgery. So... My left ear now, I don't wear really hearing aid anymore, so basically oh, I really? hear much better. Oh. But uh, I had a very severe, like a monotone speech, but I've learned to work on my speech. What I did is I studied phonetics to learn the inflection of my speech. So I changed that over the course of the years because I figured if I didn't do that, then I'm always going to sound like a person that has a severe hearing loss. Mm -hmm. So I changed, I worked on that because my ability is that everything in my life is that I maximize what I can do within my capacity, like my passion. Like if I have something lacking behind, I would accelerate that and maximize that. Like for example, uh, like besides the speech, like if I find new ways to hear better, I would do something about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Are you kind of like, uh, do you talk to a lot of kids that have hearing Oh, definitely. Because you're yeah. like a role model for that. Yeah, I'm a worldwide uh, motivational speaker. I talk about maximizing your personal power because sometimes nobody has a disability and they want that hope. It could be in a wheelchair, maybe one eye, maybe in a cane, but it's not the end of your life. There's always hope. Mm -hmm. And they see what I've overcame and much that I had a fight in my life, they feel they have hope they can do the same thing. Mm. Yeah, it's inspirational. Yep. Did you do a lot of other acting after The Hulk? Well, I've done over 40 films, five different TV series. Wow. Oh, yeah. What are some of the other movies that you had done? Was there like, a, I think, did you were you like a Hercules one time or something I like that? I did Hercules. Like an I Italian, did. like kind of yeah. a shitty movie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they offered me that. It was a nice uh, payday. Right. But, but I've always wanted to be Hercules. Uh -huh. So when you do those Italian spaghetti film, it was fun because we filmed in Rome, Italy. 
And I knew at the time they dubbed my voice for continuity, but then everything changed after that. Then doing the theater, then I've done comedy like in King of Queens sure. for seven years, and the movie I Love You, Man. That was great, and I've too. done action films. I've got three other films coming out. So you're always working. Oh, you've, you've been a nonstop working actor for for 41 years. Yeah, I'm a scorpion workaholic. <laughs> you know there you go. Exactly. You just have that drive. That's it, man. You have to. That's, that's a good point. The drive. We have that drive, mm -hmm. and we thrive on it. Mm -hmm. We love it. I never realized it was a Scorpio trait, but you just. But you know what's interesting? There. People say, "Don't you take long vacations? Relax." I should say, "This is my vacation. I enjoy this." Like for example, my hobby. I'm back to woodworking. Hmm. But my, my one of my greatest achievements, 14 years ago, I went through the academy. I became a deputy sheriff. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that in a couple different places. Well, in L.A. and San Luis Obispo, but I've been deputized in 15 different states. I'm a certified police officer, and I do a lot of search and rescue because I like giving back because my father was an NYPD. Right. And he always said to me, you can't, you're not perfect. You can't, you can never have a perfect life. He always would... Uh, very negative towards hmm. me. Yeah. Do I carry his pain? Why? Because of his... Because of yes. His, because when hearing? I lost my hearing, I was not the perfect son. So I carry his pain. Hmm. He was a very negative person because everything he wanted to become, I've become. Hmm. That kind of... Uh, motivated me. Motivated you, yeah. yeah. So tell me about a little bit about the deputizing. What exactly does that mean? What does it mean when you're deputized? Well, deputizing means other states, the fact that I become honorary other states, but I went through the academy and I became a certified deputy sheriff okay. in L.A., the real deal. Not honorary in L.A., the yeah. real deal. So you actually went to police academy? Uh, sheriff. Sheriff yeah. yeah, I could carry a gun, I have the uniform, everything. I can go on patrol and do all the, all the things that a deputy sheriff does. I'm a certified deputy sheriff. So when did you do that? Like, when did you get... Uh, 14 years ago. Okay, 14 years ago. So and what was your... And what, why? Well... I ran into a sheriff at the time, Sheriff Baca, and we were talking about law enforcement, my father. He said, why don't you go through the academy? Because I told him how much I love law enforcement. And I said, sure. So I, took, I took six months off, went through the academy, learned how to shoot and drive, take all these different uh, exams. It was tough. Because my whole uh, dining room table covered all these textbooks and I learned all about the laws of arrest, the Constitution. And then it, it got easy and easier, like going back to school. But that's something I've always wanted. Mm. And I was very honored when I, uh, when I got the badge. So have you gone out on uh, on uh, stakeouts and routines? I've done it, but you know I got to be very careful because you know when you're on, on patrol. I mean, it's not like you're making a movie; it's a real deal. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be a shooting situation. They shoot deputies, so that's a risk you have to take. Have you had any anything like that happen? I've came close to it, but it's mm -hmm. been tough. But I like to do a search and rescue in the mountains because they have gang related, they have suicide with AR five helicopter. I enjoy doing that because. That's my passion. Looking for people that are lost in the woods sort of thing? Yeah, lost right? in the woods, jumping, suicide, motorcycle accident. Because Angela Forest is motorcycle haven, 500 square miles. A lot of times it's a motorcycle accident, and they get injured in remote areas. So we fly by helicopter, and I would go down to uh, rescue them. Like on a zip line or something? Yeah, really? from the helicopter, yeah. We're trained to climb Icy Mountain, up, get airlifted up out the helicopter. I'm, wow. I'm trained to do that. That's a reality show right there. Well, it's a real <laughs> deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So how, how, do, do people like call on their cell and say, I'm hurt, or how do you know that they're there? Well, we get a, a phone call from the dispatcher. For example, say someone's lost. They would have a cell phone, someone was their radio, and we would drive up or flag the helicopter right to the scene where they are specifically. And also, I teach weapon shooting. Mm. I love guns, and I do a lot of speaking for the department. Do you have shifts, or do they call you, or are you on call? I do. I make my own hours because I don't take a salary. Mm. So I work with full-time. I work with the reserves. So I, I enjoy doing that. 
That's really cool. Well, it's a great career move, and I educate these young kids because there's so much brutality now with the police officers that sheriff people label them as being bad people, but they forget in the crime scene, they don't see the other side where they have to go through. I mean, like for example in Ferguson, like that cop got beat up. I mean, we're trained though. If we get attacked, we have to use, we have to retaliate with, with force. Mm -hmm. it, you know, yeah. Yeah, otherwise. Uh, Save your life. Exactly. Yeah. What do we, you we have to use deadly force. We have to. It, it seems, yeah, like police kind of have a bad rap in a lot of ways. It's kind of the cool thing to do now. But I don't see a lot of brutality when, like you said, you, if somebody's doing something wrong, you, it's your job to stop them from doing that. Yeah, I mean, of course, they're have some officers make some mistakes. Yeah. I mean, that nobody's perfect. But but generally speaking, sometimes uh, when someone's angry, they just want to blame the cop because let them go out and go on patrol. Let them go out on the street and see what it's like to deal with people throwing sick and block, shooting, example, gangs and riot. Let's see what they feel like. Sure. Yeah. Have you ever had anybody when you uh, go to talk to them or something it's like, oh, gee, oh my God, it's Lou Ferrigno about to arrest me? <laughs> well, they they see me for a second, then they realize they have to respect me because of it. Yeah. Yeah. The one time I had to rescue this woman, she was in the mountain. She fell down into her lake. So there I was lowering myself from the helicopter. And I remember she looked at me and she fainted because she saw who I was. And I'm saying to myself, great, I got a woman now, she faints. It was funny. She was crying. She said, oh, my God, the Hulk is saving me. The Hulk is saving yeah. me, right? <laughs> did you get any calls? You did some stuff with, like, the original Hulk, the, the, not the original, the Hulk movies that they've done now, like uh, the Marvel comics. You were in those movies, weren't you? Like yeah, I've done The Voice. I did a couple of cameos. Cameos, and, yeah. Yeah, with uh, Stan Lee. And I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. You're, like, part of the family. Yeah. When, when you come out here and you're out here, right? Now, they're all waiting for you, Louie. They want to see what you got. They've never seen you before. Right? You tense your legs, right? Then you look at the crowd, Louie. They're all looking at you. Flash bulbs are going to go off and everything. Then you put your arms like this. You look at your arms like you're admiring, right? You're admiring what you're going to show them. And then you go, boom, like you're saying, take a look at this hunk of man. Something like that, okay? You try it now. You're talking about training. Um... And, and being kind of like a, known as being a, the, one of the best bodybuilders of all time. Now, I read something years ago that I specifically did not research because I want to ask you, did you train Michael Jackson? 20 years. 20 years? On and I kept it a secret. That's, oh my goodness, well, tell us about that. Well, I trained Chuck Norris and Bob Wall for many years. Chuck Norris too? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and Bob? Wall. Bob Wall. He was in Enter the Dragon. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Randy Travis... So what happened, though, I had a good friend of mine who was Michael Jackson, plastic surgeon. So he said, uh, could you try to train Michael? Because Michael can't go to a gym. And Michael needs some support and some uh, supervisor when it comes to training. I said, sure. So he came to my facility in Santa Monica. We became friends. And he wanted to keep it quiet. So I trained him for the history tour and then also for the last one on and off for 20 years. We were good friends. So how, we, how would you train Michael Jackson? Very light. I mean, Michael needed di discipline. You would use the band, very lightweight, you know, cardio, flexibility, very light. And, um, you know, because he had his share of injury. Mm -hmm. But he was a phenomenal person. Really? Good guy? Yeah, great. Yeah? But nobody knows Michael, only a few people when you're alone with him. Like, for example, I went to the Neverland Ranch, and he takes me in the car driving me around. But you can't do that in the street. You have to have a suburban, you know, a bodyguard. So we had a great time. So I spent a few uh, days with him. I mean, he's such a generous person. You know, like you said, it's hard for, I mean, we can understand it to a certain degree. We have some fame. People know us, especially when we're here. But a guy like that, that is a household name in every household worldwide. 
It's like being Paul McCartney or something. Like that level of fame. Like Mickey Mouse. Like Mickey Mouse, exactly. The guy can't go out anywhere. Right. You know? So, so like you said, he needs the private training with you. Yeah, and he can't drive. He gets to an accident. I mean, it, sure. Yeah, so his life was very sheltered. He's obviously one of the greatest dancers of all time. A lot of uh, cardio going on on stage. Did you have to, was, was that kind of your, like when you're looking at him, you said lightweight training, were you trying to get him better cardio shape as well? Well, more cardio also keep the ligaments and tendons uh, strengthened because as he's getting older, he never exercised because the fact all the dancing trying to minimize his injuries. Mm. And uh, I just made sure that he just stick with the flexibility. We sometimes would use the, the ball, like for example, the, the medicine ball sometimes, the, Airball, you know, to do ab training yeah. and to make sure that everything he did that that would be choreographed also with his dancing. Because his uh, his mindset is obviously not to become super buff, but just to get in better shape. Yeah, because he takes the singing lesson. He he rehearses for a long time for example when he goes on tour. So he needs someone to remind him to keep working out to be on top of it because his diet was terrible. He would mm -hmm. eat sometime maybe once a day and he had trouble sleeping mm. because you always hear this music and, he's, and so he had a different lifestyle. Musicians live a tough life. Mm -hmm. It's hard. But like you said, it's hard to shut off your, your mind sometimes too. Exactly. I, mean, yeah. I have that. I'm sure you do at times when you have yeah. so much stuff going on. Like I oh, rarely yeah. sleep. You know, and that actually led to Michael's dem demise almost because he had that guy giving him stuff to sleep with, right? Mm -hmm. So you were training him for that last tour for the This Is the It tour? The History Tour and the last tour and then about a month before I had to do a book tour. That I had the news, uh, I received the news when I was back east that he, he died of a heart attack. Mm. I don't know if you know, he was in debt for like $430 million. Really? Yes. He had to do the tour because he lived in Byron and then the lifestyle he lived, he was in, he was in debt for over $400 million. Just from, from lifestyle? Or yeah. did he? Uh -huh. Combination of everything. So he was going to make the biggest comeback in history. But then unfortunately, he just died. Wow. How was it? How was he those last uh, few months? Was he looking good? Was he healthy? Yeah, he was fine. I mean, I was with him. I went to his house and uh, I trained him. He had his family. He was excited about his kids. He would rehearse and do the, the voice lesson. And then it just, I think it's just, it just, just all that stress. Yeah. yeah. But when I was with him, he was fine. I didn't know they had debt for that much. Yeah. It's amazing when you have those guys that have made so much but spend even more. You know, it's mm -hmm. like I save half of everything I make and don't spend the rest, right? <laughs> but you can't take it with him. Like he, he now the whole family they're trying to uh, fight it for for the, the estate. But it's a shame yeah. because he's such an iconic guy. There'll never be a guy like him. I mean, the way he moved, the way he looked, the way he danced. Who could perform like that? Sure, and his and his uh, his creativity. Yeah, you know, songwriting skills, the perfect package that we'll never see. That's good that you get to spend some time with him. That's really cool. Who else? And you say, who else did you train? Randy Travis, mm. Chuck Norris, Bob Wall. I trained a lot of different actors. How would you train Chuck Norris? Well, Chuck, Bob made Chuck come to me because uh, Chuck was in his 40s, late 40s, and he wanted to build some muscle, get conditioned. When I trained Chuck, he was able to kick higher. And, and uh, because he, you know, Chuck is really a, a hell of a world champion. I mean, he's one. If you put him in a fight with Bruce Lee, I was told that he would win. Really? Yeah, Chuck. Yeah, like six, seven-time world champion, mm. <clears throat> great athlete. Yeah, yeah. You forget about it too, but how many? Yeah. He was a huge movie star at the back oh, yeah. in the day as well, right? But he fought because a lot of times he traveled. Sometimes when he made films, he would go on tour across the country to raise the uh, money for the box office for the film. I mean, he worked very hard at it. Mm -hmm. People think that it come easy. It didn't come easy for him. So when you're talking about, you mentioned King of Queens and the comedy part. You were great in that. Uh, comedy come naturally for you? What's the difference between comedy and action? And Why well, did a movie called The Godson with Rodney Dangerfield and Dom DeLuise? The one time the producers of The King of Queens said, why not have Lou on the show? We'll make him a neighbor. 
So I did the one episode, and they said, well, could you play yourself? I said, sure, because every day in life, I go through the same thing, Hulk jokes, cracking. <laughs> so I did it, so it became a recurring role for seven years. Yeah. And it was great, because I've always wanted to do comedy. I like to make people laugh. Uh-huh. Then the movie came out, I Love You, Man. Yeah. So that was at the next level. That was great, too. Yeah. So when you're doing comedy for King of Queens, once again, like um, those guys, would they help you, or do you have just natural comic timing? Well, when you do a sitcom, you read front of the network on Monday, and uh, from the script. So whatever doesn't sound funny, they eliminate it. Then you have the rehearsal. But you got to remember, when you do a sitcom, you're front of like 100, 200 people, and you only get two takes. And it's live. Mm, only two takes? Uh huh. It's like a soap opera. So you have to know your lines, and you have to be connected because comedy. You can't try to be funny. It's just you got to be connected That's with right. the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard, but it, but when you get into it, but there's a lot of tension. But these guys that have done it for a long time, like Kevin James, Jerry Siddle, they're just so natural at it. Mm-hmm. It's like you say, you just like a team sport. Just keep your stick on the ice yeah, and you're funny. And that's the number one rule of comedy. Don't try and be funny. Exactly. Yeah, just let the... let the. Yeah, I learned a lot being with them. It's amazing because how they have the timing where they can do in front of the camera. Like uh, Kevin Smith, uh, James is wonderful. Mm. I mean, they're very creative. Do you? Uh, and you said you have other movies getting coming out now. How many movies do you do a year? Well, I have a, a British film that came out called uh, Instant Death, with the action film, and I did another movie called Enter the Fire, kind of like a karate kid kind of film. I filmed out of San Francisco about a year and a half ago. Then I did a comedy of Game of Thrones called Purge of Thrones. I filmed last year in England for a month. That'll be coming out. But what I'm really excited about, I'm doing a new TV series for Discovery Channel called Pumped. Pumped. It's like the celebrity apprentice of fitness and bodybuilding. Meaning, for example, we have a lot of competitors for the audition, but you only have twelve competitors, and they bring their brand. They bring their bring their brand to the to the show, and to take it to the next level. And we give them the, the different challenges. Me and my partner, so we see how far because there's not much money in bodybuilding and fitness, but they can have a chance to be a businessman, be an actor. But they will learn from me and my partner to the next level if they can accomplish it. Now we're talking about anybody any walks of life, like a guy have a missing leg, but somebody that that the public will watch it. It's like Donald Trump. You know, when you watch it because the fact I raise money for charity, but these are the people that come from like all parts of the world. They want to be successful. Mm-hmm. So it'd be, it'd be a fabulous show called Pumped. Hmm. And it's interesting too, like you mentioned, um, bodybuilding, you mentioned that you guys got made $750 back in the day. It's not that much different now. You're not making big money as a bodybuilder. Even if you're Mr. Olympia now in 2018, there's not a lot of money at stake. Is that well, I, I think it's like over 100000 but you got to forget okay. the diet, the training, the traveling. I mean, uh, you know, the food intake and all the preparation. So the money they make is doing a lot of exhibition, mm. traveling. I mean, they can make a good living, but usually it's Mr. Olympia. But it's the stress of keep winning and your body under all that stress of the heavy training. Like Ronnie Coleman, he was eight-time Mr. Olympia. Yeah. And you know, he, he, I don't know if you ever see him on YouTube, but he does bend over rope for 500 pounds. He squatted one time 800 pounds for three reps. And now he, he's in a wheelchair. He injured Is himself. He really? Yeah, because he had back surgery and then he came back training heavy again. I think he's one of the greatest of all time. But very hard on the body. But the thing is, when I competed, I love pain. To be a world champion, you have to love pain. You got to go beyond that barrier. You think you can't do two more? You have to do two more if you want to be successful. That's what bodybuilders take, like the Olympic lifters. If they convince they can't lift 500, they're not going to lift 500. It's all in the mind how far, how much you can take the body to. Are you talking the pain of like that feeling, that burn? The burn, not the pain like, yeah, like you're having surgery. With that pain, for example, 
if you feel that the body's telling you you can't handle two more, when your mind takes you further to, to increase the size and the density of your muscles to train even harder. Mm. That's why, like myself, you take Arnold, the drive we had, the reason why I became a champion because not just having genetics, I had that incredible hunger to drive to be the world champion. I said nothing could have stopped me. Mm. When, when you think about bodybuilding in 2018, is there a lot of differences from, from 1975 to now? Oh, yeah, because I came back and I was, I was 268 pounds. So when I came back in the 90s to compete, the hardest thing is to develop, develop the hunger to compete because I had a wife and two kids at the time. Mm. And, you know, my lifestyle was different. You know, you have a nice house, and not like I was living in an apartment, you know, and you only have a few dollars to buy food. So I had to develop the hunger, but I had to come back knowing that I had to be like 30, 40 pounds more, heavier, bigger. Because in the 70s, you had guys that competed, they weighed like maybe 220, 230, but then when I came back in the 90s, we're talking about like 260, 270. So I got my way to 325 because I, I was the oldest competitor. When I, when I retired, I was a younger competitor. Mm. So I had to prove to the world I looked like a 90s bodybuilder, not like in the 70s. Oh, wow. So how did you do that? I spent two years to train heavy, heavy squat again, heavy bench pressing, and then do more cardio because of the, uh, of the technology of diet and cardio, I was able to put more size on and then different ways of training instead of starving yourself like in the 70s because we didn't have the cardio equipment mm -hmm. or the fancy equipment we have today. You see some of those old gyms in the 70s, it's like so ridiculous, the stuff you guys had to, to use. Yeah, you get an Olympic bar, you put bars at the end, you stick the other bar on the wall <laughs> yeah. and, you, and you improvise like dumbbells. Like if I had to do leg curls, I lay on the bench and put a dumbbell between my feet and do leg curls. Because uh -huh. they didn't have a leg curl machine? Nope. Wow. Yeah. When did that all happen? Because it was like the uh, the pre-core training. There's a, with a certain level with all the machines. That started like in the 80s then? Yeah, that started in the 80s. The whole revolution started when the Nautilus machine came Nautilus, out. Nautilus, that's it, yeah. Yeah, and then they started to make other equipment similar to the Nautilus, Nautilus machines like the Lake Ascension, hash squat, inclined squat, different angles. Like you have seated cap machine. I didn't have a seated cap machine. I put a bar on my uh, <laughs> on, on knees and then find a way to do it. Seated uh, cap. I was in Japan a couple of years ago and they had a couple of things and there was like a a wheel that spins with like wooden like kind of little uh, wooden pieces on it that would, I guess was supposed to massage your back and then there was the 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 ribbon that goes around your stomach that was supposed to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all bullshit. Yeah, yeah it's all bullshit. Right? But it was a gimmick back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as far as the, the dieting and nutrition, is it more of a science now? Yeah, it's seventy five percent now of training because when i uh, came back to competition i was able to eat four or five times a day because you learned that when you do cardio you increase your cardio also you could consume more calories so that that can help to put on the added uh, muscle and body weight because back in the 70s too it was like raw eggs liver yeah, meat and water uh, maybe one banana a day you starve yourself otherwise you build a size on and then you have to almost burn all the fat, you lose a lot of size. But now it's the other way around. If you're muscular, you can almost train, increase your size to the day of the show and maybe lose five pounds instead of losing 15, 25 pounds. Mm. What was your, uh, your uh, calling card as a bodybuilder? Chest, arms, abs, everything? I would say overall my size, my trap, my chest, and the arm. Mm. That was kind of it. So what was your arm, arm workout? What would you do for that? The arm routine, I would do maybe 12, 14 sets of body parts, always like a barbell curl, inclined dumbbell curl, and the concentration curl. I never really overtrained, but I trained body parts twice a week because I knew that I learned to listen to my body because most bodybuilders have a tendency to overtrain. 
and they uh, and they just end up losing sight. Mm. Explain that to someone who might not understand what overtraining is. Overtraining means, for example, say you and I go to the gym, we work out, and say I say we're going to do a body part like chat. Say we do three exercises, and you decide to do maybe fifteen exercises because you think more the better. And you walk out of the gym, you're, you're so sore and you're hurting all the time. That's overtraining. You only train. To, only so many steps for the muscle, but you need 72 hours to recuperate. Mm-hmm. It's the same with protein, too. Like people eat so much protein, but I was always told body's like a cup, and once you get to that protein, there's only so much you can take, and then after that, it just kind of will overflow and just be useless. Oh, definitely, because your body's only utilize, utilize so much protein. Like, for example, I was saying the most I consume, one time I consumed maybe 300, over 300 grams of protein, like one gram of protein per, per pound of body weight. Right. Now probably one gram of protein for every two and a half pounds of body weight. But you only, only, you can only absorb so much protein. If it's too much protein, then it's going to turn to fat. It'll be extra calorie. Do you follow bodybuilding to this day? Oh, I do. I've had a bodybuilding competition the last four years myself, the Ferrigno Legacy. Where's I that? Have the time to, uh, Palm Springs. Okay. But I don't have the time to do it anymore, but I do follow bodybuilding because I think it's so popular now, especially when it comes to the men's physique. And now you have the figure... But the big change when you have women competing and you have women in the gym working out, because when I was in the 70s working out, you never saw a woman in the gym. Yeah. <laughs> so did, it was like a Bev Francis, just a monster, right? <laughs> yeah, she was like one of the first ones. Yeah. But uh, before that, there were no women in the gym. So really? It was only men, only guys. Uh-huh. Okay. I remember when I came here to Canada in the, the 70s, no women working out in the gym. Even the early 80s, yeah, you had uh, a gym for women and a gym for men. So now it's, it's co-ed. It's amazing how much that's changed, uh-huh. you know, how, how accepted it is now in society and almost uh, necessary. It's, 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 people are expected to go to the gym now. Yeah, it's, it's like a rule of thumb. It's your health because health is your greatest wealth. And, uh, and a lot of people, especially in America, it's a big, it's a big obesity. Like a sure. lot of kids you know, on video games, on the iPhone, they don't work out because when I was young, we didn't have uh, Facebook. We didn't have all these video games. So it's more involved in a- athletic activity. Mm-hmm. Today, there's so much kid, young kids being lazy mm-hmm. with the headphones, yeah. the iPhone. And it's sad because they don't appreciate taking care of their bodies. And that's why when they get older, they go to drugs and alcohol and then ruin their bodies. It's amazing. Even for myself, I used to read so much, read books. I had a book going all the time. I still do, but it takes me eight months to read it. Because if you have a second, you're always on your phone looking around, going on the internet, seeing exactly, what's happening, yeah. right? That I have to be it two or three times to retain it. Because yeah. It's probably the same way. Yeah, the same you thing. You have to labor at it. Some people just read it, they have that photograph memory. Yeah, but that's a, a couple of last things I just want to ask you about when you, you mentioned Trump, when you did, you did Celebrity Apprentice. Yep. How was that show for you? It was tough. In because when I came on the show, they expected all born, no brain. Mm. Okay, here comes this big athlete, the incredible Hulk. Let's see what he can do. I was the only athlete to make it the ninth show. They were afraid of me, the guys, because. In the boardroom, I said how I felt because I had that drive. I said to myself, I want to raise money for my charity, Muscular Dystrophy and ALS, which I raised 100000 Donald Trump was great with me. He respects people that work hard, even though he's a loose cannon. Yeah. But I would get involved in the politics. Yeah, yeah. But I had a great time doing the show because you were singers, you were musicians, you were different breed of people. And the, everybody on the show are millionaires. Uh-huh. And, and then you know, also you had the, uh, the women you work with. So no one likes to get fired. And it's brutal because you're up 5 o'clock in the morning in front of the camera for all day long from like 6 in the morning to almost midnight. I got asked to do that show a couple times and it just never worked out. And I was like, I was like you said, like, I wonder how it would do on that when you have a group of a bunch of 
alphas, millionaires, yeah. all very successful, having to kind of fall into line. I'm sure some people were kind of harder to get along with. Than well, others. you're dealing with all the ego. Yes. And I didn't give a vast out about the ego because most people would be intimidated. But the nice thing about Celebrity Apprentice, the ego down the window, all about how you perform, which was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're in the boardroom with Donald Trump, ego doesn't help you. It's all about how you perform and what you do. <laughs> right, right. Who else is on the show with you this your season? Uh, Penn Jillette, George Decay, okay. uh, Arsenio Hall. Right. And the one I did, Arsenio Hall won. Okay. Yeah. So they were intimidated by you? Scared of you? Well, they were afraid because the guys in the boardroom, because I didn't care what I had to say, because you know when you're working together as a team, you gotta be careful what you say because then you can hurt yourself because part of the project. But in the boardroom, it was my honesty. I was like a drill sergeant. I just said what I thought. I didn't care. So do they have to have you, like, do you have to like, come up with stuff to sell on the street? Like, I've seen that before. We have to come up with a product and go sell this, 20 of these on the street in an hour. Like, was it that sort of thing? Too? Yeah, they give you a product. Like, for example, they say one project we have, like, on the, on the Madison, like, Fifth Avenue, and you, you have the, you, the window displayed. So, okay, we had these two uh, line of clothing. We wanted to display the line of clothing, and you, want, and you, you have to develop the presentation of it. But the whole time when you're working, you have to think of two people that you think they have to be fired. Because when you go in the boardroom, someone has to get fired. So you have to tell that Donald Trump, <laughs> the person you think who should be fired. Like you and I could be working together. Yeah. And you may we think we're good friends. But if I think you're the wicked person, I have to bring your name up in the boardroom. To get, yeah. I would have a choice. Yeah. So when that happens, it sucks because if you don't get fired, then the next day you hate that person even more. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who did you try and get fired that didn't? Ben Gillette. Okay. Well, it was tough. Uh, George K. one time. So uh, it was tough. I, I, I hated to do it because... It's the strategy of the show, though. Yeah. At the beginning, it was wonderful. But as time goes on, when you do the show, you end up hating everybody because it, it, it's like it's like like being... Uh, in a war, like <laughs> who got you fired? Well, apparently, I every, what everyone did, which I didn't know, but they have received the project. They were texting other people to learn how to uh, come up with ideas for the show. I never had the advantage of texting, so I remember the, when I time to get fired. That hurt against me because I was unable to do, do uh, commercial stuff on the computer, and I didn't mind getting fired because it was tough. After yeah. nine show, it get brutal. Yeah, the one that done well, uh, for example, the singer, the musician, because they would choose something to could sing a song. So that was the advantage. But I learned a lot of the show. I learned a lot about branding. Mm, in what way? Well, how to market yourself, your name and everything, yeah. because Donald Trump made his money by branding, like Trump Tower, Trump Clothing, and he's a genius. President of the United States. <laughs> exactly, yeah. like yourself, you. Yeah. Like things like me, I mean, you, same thing, you brand your name. Absolutely. Investment. And that carries on to other things like marketing, like, for example, products, endorsement, T-shirts. But that's the thing, like, you and I are the same. Obviously, okay, you, you're known for acting, but you're also the deputy. You've got Hulk, you've got the pump right. thing. You know, it's the same with this podcast and wrestling, I, my band. It's, it's, it's the way to, to ensure that you have longevity in, in this business. Exactly, and also it's all about reinventing yourself. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because when you get older, because most people in the business are 22, 23, but as you get older, you have different passion, but you reinvent yourself. The beauty about the social media today, you can exploit your brand worldwide. Mm. Are you on social media? 
Yeah, my Facebook is like 2.6 million. You take advantage of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing because a lot of times you're on the computer and you say to yourself, you read the news, you say, hey, let me go on Facebook, let me see what so-and-so is doing. That's the beauty of the great social media. Sure. It's got its advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're on it too much, you get obsessed with it, all that sort of thing. Yeah, too. like for example, say you're on a plane, you get to an argument or something, somebody got an iPhone. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to make a big scene like yeah. you have, with your name and everything. Right. If, if it's Joe Blow, the next guy, they won't make anything out of it. Yeah, yeah. Last couple of questions. What's your uh, some of your like your favorite of all the stuff you've done? What are some of your favorite performances that you've had in the movies or on TV? In the movies, like your favorite role that you played. As, as far as the movies and television, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would say like we know you as the Hulk. We know you from I Love You, Man. But is there a movie that that maybe people haven't seen that you really enjoyed? Yes, uh, I think with the movie Cage, I played a soldier in Vietnam that was shot in the head. I become mentally deficient. And these mobs, they kidnapped me. They used me as a human cockfighter in the cage for money. Oh. So it got a lot of reviews. That was about 30-some years ago. But that needed more attention because now you see similar movies to it. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Did you do a lot of those type of movies as a leading man where they would write a role, like you said? like for Yeah, you? like for example, in England, I filmed this movie, uh, this action film. And it's funny, I was getting a massage every night because... I say to myself, I'm not 20 years old. So all the fighting, <laughs> the punching, I, I'm getting into tissue therapy. I'm very proud of that movie. I would say Instant Death is one of my favorite movies because it's about a guy from the Special Forces. They harm, they kill his, my granddaughter and they harm, they, they cut my daughter's eyes down. So I go on to Revenge and you see like, it's almost like the movie Taken with Liam Nielsen. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a very heavy duty action film. Is, it a, is that the one you just did, a recent one? About two years ago, yes. Wow, so here you are at 66, still being the leading man in action movies. I mean, that's, uh, it's, 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 cause that's, you know, you're in the Stallone category. I mean, Arnold still does it and you still do it. I mean, that's a, that's a, a lot of work to do for a guy your age, but like you said, you don't care. You want to yeah, do also, it. Also, also thanks for exercise and training because Fifty some years ago, it would be impossible. The only one today that got longevity, I think, in the eighties, like Clint Eastwood. Yeah, he could still pull it off. Right. But years ago, you didn't have anybody in the seventies, the eighties, except for a, a great stage actor. But far as action film, like Stallone, like Arnold, they they still pull it off. Like at seventy years old. Isn't it amazing? Like when you think of our fathers, like when my dad, I'm forty seven. My dad was forty seven. He was like wearing sweatsuits and big glasses, and you know, you know and your dad in pumping iron. He was 50. 50. He looked like he was 75. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Now it's like times have changed to where the age doesn't really make much of a difference as long as you still keep yourself in shape and still try yeah. to look good. And then, it's a mindset. Right. If you keep feeling like, for example, you keep feeling like, for example, if you stop telling yourself, okay, I'm 66, I have to act like 66, like, uh, you know, I meet a lot of people that are my age. Yeah. They look like the 75, 80. I meet people 10 years younger than me that look like the 75, yeah, 80. The biggest factor is not working out and not eating right, not taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. That's the biggest factor. Because mm -hmm. when you have that combination, that gives you the mentality knowing that you're young inside of you. You don't have to equate yourself with the age you are. You're right. I, I saw the Stones last year to see Mick Jagger on stage at 73 or 4. Still the greatest frontman in the world. Not not a great frontman for a 70-year-old, a great frontman for anybody. Yeah. You know, and still plays the part, looks the part, and, 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 and sounds great, you know, and looks great. That's the secret. Last question. Who's, who do you think is the greatest bodybuilder of all time? Lou Ferrigno. <laughs> Besides you. Schwarzenegger. It, really? The I've, reason why I say I'm the greatest, because I never really reached my full potential. In what way? Arnold even said, when I competed with him in 74, he said, if I had a loose body, no one could ever beat me. Well, 
because I had sidetracked, you know, with the pumping iron, with the Hulk. I never really reached my full potential. Oh. So, I, yeah. But uh, I would say one of my all-time favorite, I would say Steve Reeves. Mm. He played the original Hercules. Yeah. He was the perfect male specimen of bodybuilding. But you can remember, I had to hand it to Arnold because uh, next to me, I would say, I would say right up, way up there because, you know, he, he, he's the hell of a, hell of a bodybuilder. Do you th do you think if you if you had not done Hulk and all the stuff that you would have been Mr. Olympia? Oh yeah, about yeah. seven eight times, wow. definitely. Wow, wow, wow. But what's funny is that if I did it, I wouldn't have the fame and the notoriety. Sure. No, no, notoriety I have now. You could be like Dave Draper or like Dorian Yates or somebody that won eight times and yeah. no one really knows. Exactly because it's not in the mainstream. Yeah, you're right, right, right. Yep. You became mainstream with exactly. Hulk and Ken. The, yep. the, the, the reason why you didn't become Olympia is the reason why we're sitting here today. Exactly. Because of the Hulk. I mean, it was my biggest dream my whole life to be much Olympia. Yeah. But I can't have both. Yeah, you did pretty good otherwise, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Lou, thank you so much for thank doing you. this, man. Thank you. We're I shaking said, hands. Too. Audio. <laughs> These people have never seen your arms. They've seen Arnold. So hold that pose a while. And I say, in this pose, just tilt your body a little because there's people on this side of the theater and there's people on this side of the theater. They want to see you. So just tilt your body just slightly like this, right? Try that alone. Attaboy. All right, thanks to Lou Ferrigno. Lou's got a couple of movies coming out this year and you can keep up with everything he's got going on. But following him on Instagram, he's at the official Lou Ferrigno. He also posts some pretty cool throwback pictures from his early days bodybuilding. Great guys you could hear. And I love the stories about Pumping Iron. Go watch that documentary if you haven't seen it, it's amazing. Okay, did you book your cabin for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea Part 2? Setting sail January 20th, 2020. So many 20s because that vacation is going to be 20 times better than any vacation you ever had. Cabins went on sale on Wednesday at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. And I hope you'll be joining us because we added some more killer talent to the lineup, man. Like I said, we got uh, the Wolfpack, the NWO, whatever you want to call them. Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Sean Waltman, X-Pac, will be there along with our host, comedian Brad Williams. Vicky Carrero is our special cruise director. Fozzie's going to be playing a bunch of shows during the cruise. Farewell to Fear. Rubik's Cube, the ultimate 80s tribute band with PJ Farley and Steve Brown from Trickster. Joey Casado from CO2 are in that band. It's going to be a blast. AEW, great wrestling is going to happen. And we haven't even gotten into who's going to be there from AEW. DDP will be back doing live DDP yoga workshops on the ship. Jake the Snake Roberts is going to be on board. Beyond the Darkness doing paranormal activity, paranormal uh, experiences. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Bruce Jingles will be doing comedy on board the cruise as well. So much stuff going on, and we're very, very excited. Like I said, the cruise, uh, the bulk is sold out. Still got some cabins ready, though. Cabins available. ChrisJerichoCruise.com. Sign up. Don't miss the vacation of a lifetime. And trust me, we got a lot of big names coming up. Uh, speaking of big names, coming up on Wednesday, it's the biggest name in wrestling that you have never heard of. I'm talking about Rebel Starbuck, who is the number one wrestler in Finland history. Uh, has also really cultivated his name all across Europe, and especially in Japan, one of Tajiri's great rivals, the Buzzsaw, the Japanese Buzzsaw. If you haven't heard of the Rebel Starbuck, you're going to hear from him uh, on Wednesday. I actually uh, started my career with him. And he's gone on to become very successful on a worldwide basis, but never worked in the States. So uh, we will be happy to let you know all about the Rebel Starbucks this Wednesday on Talk is Jericho. In the meantime and in between time, have a great weekend. Be safe. Peace, love, and hugs. Stay cool. Stay hard. Stay hungry. And have a great, great weekend. Oh, yeah. All right. I'm training Arnold.